Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Roe to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to roco snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters and by Thatched Cottages. Tonight, we'll be reading another chapter from the book Bird Watching, published in 1901 by Edmund Sellis, titled Watching Birds in the Greenwoods. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to listen to our Blackbirds episode, Watching Birds from a Haystack, and also Watching Seabirds from this series as well. The author started as a conventional naturalist of his time, but Celis developed a hatred of the common practice at the time of killing animals for scientific study and was a pioneer of bird watching as a method of scientific study. The author was a solitary man and was not well known in ornithological circles. He avoided both the company of ornithologists and reading their observations so as to base his conclusions entirely on his own observations. The word greenwood refers to both unseasoned firewood and, in this case, a forest in full leaf as in summer. get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body 
into the softness of your bed. Now, take a few deep breaths. There is an independent or self-reliant quality which so many birds possess and by virtue of which they often act differently to their fellows even when there is a strong inducement to them to act as they do. This seems to me an important point for it must be as the foundation stone upon which change of habit would be built. And change of habit points out a certain path along which change of structure, were it to occur, would be preserved, and a new species be thus formed. One might think that the most timid birds would, under ordinary circumstances, be the ones least liable to change their habits. For such change would often mean a penetrating into fresh fields and pastures new, where they might be expected to fear and distrust in a higher degree than amidst surroundings with which they were familiar. This, perhaps may be the case, but one must distinguish between timidity and a wary caution or prudence, which may be combined with an independent, perhaps one may even say a bold, spirit. The moorhen is an example of such a combination. I have watched these birds for hours browsing over some meadowland, bordering a small and very quiet stream near where I live. Sometimes there would be a dozen or twenty scattered over a wide space, and every now and again, when something had alarmed them, the whole troop, one taking the cue from another, would run or fly pell-mell to the water, most of them swimming across and taking refuge in a belt of reeds skirting the opposite bank, while some few would remain floating in midstream, ready to follow their companions, if necessary. In two or three minutes, or sometimes less, they would all be back browsing again, and so continue till, all at once, there was another panic rush and flight. The cause of these stampedes were generally undiscoverable, But sometimes, when the birds stayed some time down on the water, the figure of a rustic would at length appear, walking behind a hedge, 
along a path bounding the little meadow. Of such a figure, rooks and many other birds would have taken no notice, even when considerably nearer. One cause of alarm I frequently noted, and this was when another moorhen would come flying over the meadow, either to alight amongst those upon it, or making for a more distant point of the stream. Such birds, though not alarmed themselves, for I frequently saw the commencement and spontaneous nature of their flights, yet always brought alarm to the others, a fact which seems to me interesting, for it cannot be supposed that these would have been disquieted at the mere sight of one of their kind, and if they judged from the flying bird's manner that it was seeking safety, then they judged wrongly. This, again, does not seem likely, and the only remaining explanation is that they drew an inference. This bird may be flying from danger, which, I think, must have been the case. At any rate, each time one of themselves sent them all in a race to the water, just as a dog or a man would have done. But I must qualify the word all. Often, perhaps each time, one or two birds might be seen, like the pheasant, to glance warily about, as though to assure themselves whether there was danger or not, standing the while in a hesitating attitude, and ready on the slightest indication to follow their companions. Then, having satisfied themselves, they would continue quietly to browse, for more hens browse the grass of meadows, as do geese. Coming now to the opposite side of the bird's character, its boldness and enterprise, I remember one afternoon when I had been watching the stone curlews, seeing, just as evening was falling, a moorhen walking along the piece of wire netting which skirted a wheat field, or rather an arid waste of sand where some wheat was feebly attempting to grow. The whole country around was the chosen haunt of the former birds, as opposed, therefore, to anything damp, moist, or marshy, as can well be imagined. The moorhen went steadily on, 
with a composed and mind-made-up step, never deviating from the straight line of the netting till, upon coming to where this was continued at a right angle in another direction, it found its way through and proceeded to cross a green road skirted with fir trees into another Sahara-like waste where I lost it at least a quarter of a mile from the nearest little pond or pool. Possibly it was walking from one of these to another, but quite as probably, in my experience, it was leaving its ordinary haunts for some inland part it had discovered where it could get food to its liking. For the more hens living in the little creek or stream that I used to watch would range over the adjacent meadowland, and a few of them, having come to the limit of this, would climb up a steep bank and through a hedge at its top down again into a little bush and bramble-grown patch on the other side. One bird, indeed, that I startled, actually climbed this bank and scrambled through the hedge into the patch instead of flying to the water, which is as though a lady were to take up Shakespeare rather than a novel. Again, I have startled a moorhen out of a large tree standing in a thicket, and a good way back from the ditch surrounding it, such a tree as one might have expected to see a wood pigeon fly out of, but certainly not a moorhen. Such variations of habit are to me more interesting than those of structure, for they represent the mind, as do the latter, which they may probably have in most cases preceded the body. Changes of structure, too, if slight, are not easy to see and as soon as they become observable, the varying animal is dubbed another species, or, at least, a variety of the old one, so that one is not allowed, as it were, to see the actual passage from form to form. One is always either at one end of the bridge or the other. But changed habits may be marked in transit, and there is hardly, perhaps, a bird or a beast which, if closely watched, will not be seen to act sometimes in a manner which, 
if persisted in to the neglect of its more usual circle of activities, would make it, in effect, a new being, though dressed in an old suit of clothes. Thus, in such a bird as the robin, which is associated, and rightly, in the popular mind with the cottage, the little rustic garden, and with woodlands wild, such scenes and surroundings, in fact, as are represented, or used to be, on Christmas cards. To illustrate this, I take from my notes the following. A robin, it is in December, flies on to the trunk of a fallen tree, spanning the little stream. From thence on to some weedy scum lying against it on the water, from which he picks something off and returns again to the trunk. Two or three times again he flies down and hops about on the weeds, and sometimes, whilst doing so, pecks at the great black trunk. Now he is standing on them contentedly, with the water touching his crimson breast feathers. He is in his first or more primitive figure, for the robin has two. Either he is a little round globe with a sunset in him, his rotundity being broken only by a beak and a tail, or else very elegant, dapper, and well set up. In the first he is fluffy, for he has ruffled out his feathers, but in the last he has pressed them down and is smooth and glossy, has almost a polish on him. Again, whilst walking by the river in the early morning, the water being very low, a robin hops down over the exposed shingle to near the water's edge, then flies across to the opposite, more muddy surface, and hops along it, pecking here and there. He again flies across and proceeds in the same way, always going up the stream, crosses again, and so on. Each time he is farther away from me, and now I lose sight of him, but this is evidently his system. How out of character he seems amidst the mud and ooze of the dank riverbed on this chill winter's morning. How little like the robin of poetry and Christmas card. 
how much more in the style of some little mud-loving, stilt-walking bird. For this is often their manner of zigzagging from shore to shore, up or down the stream. I have noticed it but now in the red shank. Yet the old associations are with him, for this is home, and the thatched cottage peeps over the familiar hedge. And here I will chronicle an experience, my own, provided there be shrubbery about. There are but few places here in England where one can sit quietly for very long without a robin stealing softly out and, as it were, sliding himself into the landscape. Then, however bleak or chill it may be, his presence seems to bring home comforts with it. But this is only when one is near home and home comforts not when one is far, far away from them. I remember in the great pine forests of Norway, so lovely, yet so stern in their loveliness, the robin seemed to have lost all his character. He did not suggest home and all its pleasures when home was no longer near, it was not, or perhaps it was, that by suggestion he made these seem farther off, but that his character seemed gone. Surely, things are to us as a part of what they move in with us, and, out of this, seem changed into be something else. I am not quite sure if the following represents any change of habits in regard to food induced by the presence of a foreign tree in any of the three birds that it concerns. I have occasionally watched the great tit in our own fir plantations, but have not yet seen him attacking the cones though the coal tit, as I believe, does so. For the green finch, I can only say that I should not have thought it of him, nor is he often to be seen in such places. The nuthatch is not common where I live. Standing this Christmas Eve under a large exotic conifer, on the lawn of the garden here in Gloucestershire, I became aware that various birds were busy amongst its branches, and I kept hearing a curious grating noise with a strong vibration in it, which seemed to be made by them with the beak upon the large fir cones but as the branches were very close together and the birds high up, 
I could not observe the manner of it. The sound, as I said before, being very peculiar. I therefore climbed the tree, which was easy, and the birds being now often quite near, though the branches and great clusters of needle tufts were much in the way, I ascertained that it was the green finch alone which was producing the peculiar vibratory noise. But how, exactly, he did it, I could not make out. He appeared to be tearing at the woody sheaths or clubs, which stood wide apart of the large fir cones, and it seemed as though, to give the vibration in the sound, either the mandibles must work against each other with extraordinary swiftness, or the clubs of the cone itself vibrate in some manner against the beak, thus causing the sound in question to mingle with the scratching made by the latter against the hard surface. The great tit and the nuthatch are also busy at the cones. The former strikes them repeatedly with his bill, making a quick rat-tat-tat he attacks them either from the branch or twigs from which they hang, striking downwards, or clinging to the side of one and striking sideways downwards, or even hanging at their tips, in which case he hammers up at them. Whilst hammering, or rather pickaxing, he often bends his head very sharply from the body, almost at a right angle, towards the point at which his blow is aimed, and then he becomes, as it were, a natural, live pickaxe, of which his body is the handle, and his head and beak the pick. After hammering a little on one of two cones that hang together, he perches on the one side and, in the intervals of hammering it, shifts his head to the first and gives it, as it seems, a sharp investigatory glance. He then flies away. A nuthatch, also, I twice see hammering at the cones in much the same manner as the tit, and, having loosened a thin brown flake from one of them, he flies off with it in his beak. I have not yet seen the tit do this, nor did I ever see him get an insect. If he got anything at all, it must have been in one of the actual blows become a peck, as when he hammers 
and a cocoa nut hung in the garden. The green finches never hammered, but only bit and tugged at the clubs of the cones. Brown flakes often fell down from them, but I never saw the birds fly off with these, as the nuthatch has done. I had seen one with a flake in his bill which, however, he soon let fall to the ground. One of the green finches is again attacking the cones, and I can now see the way he does it more plainly. He places his beak between the clubs of the cones at their tips, I mean their outer ends, and then moves his head and beak rapidly, seeming, as it were, to flutter with his head. And as he does this, you hear the grating, vibratory sound. All the time, he is clinging head downwards to the side of the pine cone. Quite a feat, for so large, at least for such a stout-built bird. I will not, however, be quite sure that it is to the cone itself that he clings. The fir needles hang in bunches near them, and his claws may be fixed amongst these, though I do not think so, or, at least, not always. Besides this sound made with the beak on the fir cones, there is another, which one often hears, and which is usually, I think, made by the greenfinch. To get at the cones, he often flies up underneath them and hangs a little. Thus, before clinging on fluttering wings, when the tips of these strike amongst the bunches of needles, a sharp, thin, vibratory rattle is produced. Also, a very noticeable sound. The nuthatch, or another one, now flies in again, uttering, as he arrives, a curious, high, sharp note. Sitch, sitch, sitch. And again, flies away with a thin, brown flake in his bill, a very woody morsel, it would seem.